The views that I express on this podcast are mine, and the same for our co-host Juan Pablo. Well, they're his. Listening to Panoptic, relating theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Panoptic, a podcast featuring conversations between a critical theorist. Uh, that's me, Juan Pablo. I'm a PhD student at the program in Modern Thought and Literature at Stanford University, and I'm happy to be co-hosting Panoptic with my friend Jason Margaritas. That's me, uh, a villainous rhetorician who appropriates theory to make money. So I guess that's where the uh, intrigue comes between our uh, conversations. And we are, you know, we're moving along, Jason. We're at our, in our eighth episode. Uh, I mean, we're really, I can't believe we're almost at 10 episodes. It feels like it's passed really fast. I know. I'm excited about uh, all the topics we've covered so far and all the cool ideas we have for the future. I mean, so far, we've talked about the role of power and supervision in the workplace through Foucault's panopticism. We've applied Nietzsche's will to power to contemporary leadership. Uh, we've talked about the challenges of technology through Bernard Stiegler, uh, about strategic communication through Socrates and Habermas, and so much more. You know, uh, we launched this podcast hoping to bring abstract philosophical concepts down to earth to help you act in the world. And it's been a learning curve for us, especially for me. Uh, but a lot of people are responding positively to the project, and our audience is steadily growing. You know, I, we're, we're both new to podcasting, and we want to get better at this. So you, the listeners, if you like what we're doing, the best thing you can do is submit feedback uh, through the website. You know, send us topic ideas, critiques, format suggestions. Uh, and if, you know, of course, if you can, throw us a bone. You know, give us a like, a follow, a review. Help more people find out about Panoptic. Yeah, do it. So what are we going to talk about today? As we approach the 2020 presidential election, and I've been you know, ambivalently watching all the debates, um, there's at least one candidate who is very concerned about the role that automation may have played in displacing millions of U.S. jobs. And Juan Pablo, we've already talked at length about automation. Um, this topic yeah. happens to, you know, it happens to intersect with every core theme of the Panoptic podcast, being communication, power, technology, theory, practice. In everyday life yep. uh, and in different ways uh, you and I were both enmeshed in technology and labor discourses through our work uh, for you the critical academic vantage point and for me the applied consulting vantage point so we're likely to continue speaking about automation and in my view automation is poised to fundamentally transform the ways in which we interact and communicate with each other across public spheres and the global economy so I find it hugely appropriate, if I do say so myself, for a change in communications person like me to be trying to make sense of it all. <laughs> Juan Pablo, do you want to respond to anything there? Do you have any uh, thoughts on tying automation back to the core themes of the Panoptic podcast? Yeah, Jason, I think you know automation is a key technical process that clearly is revolutionizing the world as we, even as we speak, right? And who knows, even one day maybe podcasts will be automated, in which case I don't know how we're going to compete. But for now, mm. uh, at the same time, I would like to add, and I want to emphasize that today and next, the next, our next episode, which is going to be of Automation 2, right, that automation is actually not a new process, uh, even if the extent to which it might be possible in the near future might be unprecedented in some senses. Because what is technology, after all, but the delegation uh, to machines of processes that uh, enhance our capacities to act uh, in the world, right? From the lever to the steam engine to Taylorism to algorithms, the history of automating tasks and processes, which, by the way, always creates new human tasks and processes, or at least has to, until now, is longer than the current 
discourse and automation might often uh, admit or realize. So it's always important, I think, to keep in mind past instances of automation, past experiences of automation, how they have uh, affected social relations and people's understanding of work, of machines, of technology. And we should learn from those experiences of, or of, how to, of automation to see how it, it's affecting us today and what we might expect. And that's where, you know, this we did some reading, right? And, and to put this a, a little bit into context for ourselves uh, and for, uh, for our discussion. Yeah, those are some really important points and it will help us track the discourses we're going to discuss today into the next episode and how they kind of compare to each other. So uh, we read a 2019 article called Labor's Global Deindustrialization by Aaron Benavov at the New Left Review. And the author raises a lot of interesting points about how the world might deal with the effects of an evolving labor force from a critical perspective. And he starts by summarizing competing discourses on the causes of declining labor demand. And ultimately, he sides with the camp that says automation is not the cause of mass job displacement in America. Uh, here's what he says. Is automation the cause of low demand for labor? I will join the critics of automation discourse in arguing that it is not. However, along the way, I will also criticize the critics both for producing explanations of how labor demand that only apply in high-income countries and for failing to produce anything like a radical vision of social change that is adequate to the scale of the problems we now confront. Uh, so there's a lot to unpack here. And Juan Pablo, I think the latter part is probably more interesting for you, you know, a radical vision of social change that goes beyond something like a universal basic income, UBI, that Andrew Yang proposes. So for me, about five pages into the article, I uh, was admittedly a little bit annoyed. It seemed like the author had rather abruptly dismissed the challenges posed by automation. And that kind of annoyed me because I work in an industry where I see the effects of simple process automation every day. You know, effects such as eliminating redundant tasks, improving efficiencies and output, and saving thousands in labor hours. So these effects are good for the bottom line. They can help your staff produce more faster. But in general, automation begets a requirement to reorganize your workforce. You know, when you automate broadly, you have three options. You can upskill your staff, you can reskill your staff, or you can eliminate your staff. So I think it is reasonable to assume that automation will increasingly displace jobs, given that companies and governments will continue to adopt automating technologies. And some people are going to choose to leave the labor force, given increasingly limited work options. This is already happening in the U.S., but I'll talk more about that later. You know, also, I have a, a soft spot for Andrew Yang. He's the only candidate who's really talking about automation, and it's a shame that more people don't take him seriously. You know, popular news media consistently fail to mention him. Meanwhile, he's polling higher than many candidates. Anyway, so mm. I noticed that Benavov cites the same Upjohn Institute article by economist Susan Hausman that Senator Elizabeth Warren and Paul Krugman are using to discredit Andrew Yang. If you listened to uh, our last episode on AI, it's episode three, you remember that my intuition on the economic consequences of AI leaned towards something like automation will become if it isn't already the primary cause of job displacement in the U.S. And after reading Hausman's work, I'm willing to say that my intuition was uh, wrong or in, at least incomplete. Uh, the offshoring of factory work to countries with cheaper wages has massively contributed to the displacement of U.S. manufacturing jobs, perhaps more so than automation right now, depending on who you ask. Um, so I, I've recalibrated my position a bit. But uh, for me, this doesn't mean that we can or should abandon our concerns about automation. And I'll, one, one last thing I'll say is after fighting it out behind the scenes with you, Juan Pablo, and actually completing Benavov's article, it turns out he has much more to say about automation than I initially credited him, him for. You know, he, he's not just regurgitating the offshoring discourse. So I'm checking my bias a little bit now. Uh, and for Benavov, automation is really a symptom of a global deindustrialization where competitive markets are beginning to break down. So Juan Pablo, do you want to provide a brief summary of his argument? Yeah, I mean, uh, you make some interesting points, Jason. Uh, I think, as we've talked about, that Benavov does not actually discount the importance of automation as a disruptive force. Uh, at the end of the piece, for instance, he acknowledges that automation can threaten large numbers of jobs with destruction. But I, I think his argument 
in fact, doesn't boil down to a question of, of which dynamic has the lead uh, in job losses in the United States, automation or offshoring of jobs. Even if he does argue that the empirical data shows that offshoring has accounted for the majority of jobs sent overseas in the long sense of if we look at the large time span uh, from around 1970 on. And that's a key date that we, we can discuss uh, next episode, why that's a key date. So the 1970s. So his argument is a systemic argument and one that proposes that automation is just one uh, process in the kind of context of, well, as you said, a sort of process of global deindustrialization, which we can talk about more at length in our next episode. But generally, the argument that he's trying to make is uh, we have a sort of system over capacity. Um, there has been almost no growth in terms of aggregate output of industrialized manufactured goods uh, very sluggish growth since 1970 and it's how we understand this that it's the, it's the way we read the data and interpret it that uh, it's in the reading of that data is the conclusions that we come out regarding you know automation are very important so i think we need to grapple with that element of his argument as well even as we review the empirical data on what is driving job loss or under, under the, underemployment in the U.S. currently, because if we look about, at Veneva's argument, uh, as we will more closely next episode, we'll see perhaps that offshoring was a big component of job loss in the United States. And perhaps at this point, it might not, no longer be the driving force. But that's not, uh, that's not to say that it's combinations of offshoring and automation don't happen in at the same time and in different measures, given the context, um, given a, a context, a global context, and the con and the specific uh, country you're talking about. Uh, yeah, and this is an argument that really, at least to my knowledge, is not p uh, present in the main mainstream political discourses right now. So it was a bit surprising for me to read this, and uh, that's I think where some of my bias came from. So. I, I think um, here's here's what I think we should do. Um, I would like our listeners to come away from the current episode and future episodes with greater economic literacy to comprehend mainstream political discourses surrounding automation. You know, many of you are, are, are likely to participate in such discourses as we approach the 2020 presidential election. So uh, let's review the literature and Socratically or strategically cross-examine the mainstream political discourses on the causes of mass job displacement, uh, offshoring versus automation. Um, but also realizing that these are local discourses that largely do not take into consideration the global context that we find in Benevov. So think of this episode as a preamble to Benevov, who will be the focus of episode eight or episode yeah. nine. You know, Juan Pablo, you rightly observed that we shouldn't discuss the local discourses without acknowledging their limitations. Um, but I have some reservations and questions, and I would like to dedicate the next episode to hashing them out with you. Um, so uh, my hope is that the current episode will provide listeners with a deeper understanding of the local discourses uttered by Elizabeth Warren and Andrew Yang. And the next episode will provide them a bonus critical perspective on those discourses. And at the end of it all, you'll have everything you need to school your politically vocal friends, uncles and coworkers, all of whom should totally be Panoptic subscribers by now. There's really no excuse at this point. Yeah. And right before Thanksgiving. So, you know, you can really make that holiday meal extra awkward. Yeah. And, you know, it might be that there's going to be a Panoptic holiday special. You can play to your entire family. As yeah. you're unwrapping presents or doing whatever it is that you there do. you go yeah. there you go and political <laughs> arguments will break out family members <laughs> will go off their, their opposite directions doors will be slammed sounds like a wonderful holiday so we're going to destroy destroy families going christmas into, uh, 2020 <laughs> <laughs> we're going to destroy christmas <laughs> that's our, that's the goal of panoptic no it's not all right well should we get into it let's do it all right <clears throat> so, manufacturing labor in the U.S. is falling, they say. So here's the historical narrative as I understand it. Um, 78,000 or 22% of U.S. manufacturing plants shut down between 2000 and 2014, displacing millions of jobs largely across rural America. Uh, 
Uh, concurrently, there is an expansion of generally lower-paying service-oriented jobs in urban areas. But um, you know, many rural folk refused to move. Uh, they didn't want to leave their homes in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, or wherever to start a brand new career, sometimes for less money, in insert city X, Y, or Z. So while some of these individuals entered into temp positions as contractors, others stopped looking for work. So according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, an agency we're going to talk quite a bit about today, um, participation in the U.S. labor force fell by 5% during this uh, period. And at yeah. the same time, the nation witnessed unprecedented upticks in substance abuse, suicide, and political polarization. And then Trump got elected in 2016. So some argue that all these things are causally related. Yeah, let me just, uh, and I think this, it's important to keep in mind, and it's, and we'll do that a little more next episode, to think that this period, 2000-2014, I think is only the tail end of the story. We really have to go back to the end of the post-war economic boom in the 70s to understand this this question, right? Uh, but I think you're right. I think it's the way it's being talked about in our discourse is sort of like the stats are fighting about what happened between 2000 and 2014. Was it automation? Was it offshoring? And I think it's important to keep in mind how that might be skewing the response. Uh, yeah, and that's interesting. And, and post-World War II, I mean, even during World War II, there's you know huge uptick in uh, munitions manufacturing. So I wonder how that plays into the story. Yeah, well, I think we'll talk about that next week. But I think it's key really to understand that look at the longer picture for when there is an, a, a large global economic downturn and a sort of uh, an end to uh, to exponential growth uh, across the high-income world, which takes place in the 1970s. Part of the discourse is, is that the, the data is, is quite challenging. Uh, so there, there are some possible mitigating circumstances here. So Upjohn Institute economist Susan Hausman who we're going to talk about a lot today. She appeared on another podcast uh, called Econ Talk that, I, that I, I like quite a bit. So if you're interested in the current topic, I'd recommend checking out this episode where Hausman explains her research in detail. And early in the episode, she discusses the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics data collection process. And let's be clear, the, the, the U.S. manufacturing workforce doesn't appear optimistic. Uh, however, we should acknowledge a few possible mitigating circumstances here, which relate to the ways in which the BLS collects and presents data. And one point we might think about is, uh, you know, what what even constitutes a manufacturing job? So in the U.S., uh, the BLS surveys select companies of various classifications to collect employment data. And any person who is employed by a business that is classified as a manufacturer, that's, you know, a business that produces goods, is counted as a manufacturing job. And we know that individuals such as janitors, administrators, and repair staff are not directly involved in the factory production of goods. However, they support factory operations, and the BLS data doesn't differentiate between workers on the line and operational support staff. Um, or if it does, you know, it doesn't do it very well all the time. Uh, so it's likely that the BLS data includes some non-manufacturing jobs, which may inflate the appearance of job displacement. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that being said, I think it's important to keep in mind that the kind of decisions you make there are interesting, right? Because if you choose to not count those as manufacturing jobs, the jobs are still gone when the manufacturing leaves, right? That's true. So yeah. they are, as you said, they're you know they're they're supporting not necessarily manufacturing jobs, but maybe it's important to keep in mind uh, the number might be technically inflated in a sense, but also does reflect the reality of. Uh, of you know a janitor having to losing a job and then maybe not having any other place to find that kind of work right and I, it seems like a reasonable assumption if there's less manufacturing happening or less human driven manufacturing and maybe there's less of a need for janitorial services so the two would go hand in hand so a second point is that the contractor workforce is growing and um you know Many factory workers are not actually full-time employees, so increasingly companies are outsourcing large segments of the work to temporary contractors, which effectively reduces the full-time employee workforce. So these contractors perform the same functions, yet the BLS doesn't count them as part of the overall, uh, overall manufacturing workforce. Instead, uh, contractors are counted as service jobs. Um, 
This could mean that we're understating the volume of labor required to support manufacturing output in the U.S. And according to Hausman, approximately half of all the jobs required to produce goods are counted somewhere outside the manufacturing industry. So there could actually be quite a lot of uh, misleading data here. So, you know, both of these challenges could create the impression that the U.S. manufacturing workforce is worse off than it actually is. And for me, one of the key takeaways is that as many companies reduce their FTE, their uh, full-time employee workforces, uh, they backfill with non-salaried temp workers who do not receive benefits. And this can sig significantly cut costs without curbing output, but it probably doesn't reflect an overall healthier workforce. Yeah, and uh, and it talks about and something I'd like to talk something I'd like to talk about in our next episode is how these these changes, right? This this shift towards contract work is part of that global dimension of American firms having to compete with cheap labor uh, overseas, right? Uh, but I think we can delve into how how the globalization of supply chains and the turn towards um, contract labor is can be maybe understood when you look at things from a global level. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. that, but and, this also makes it really difficult, as you're saying, to sort of literally understand the numbers uh, in a local context. Yeah, so I, I don't envy the work that the statisticians are doing here. Uh, but, you yeah. know, and, and it turns out the state of the labor force is one part but then there's also measuring output, which is exponentially more difficult than counting employees. So that's something else we're going to have to talk about. Yeah, for sure. Because again, globalized, globalized supply chains, if you're having um, a lot of the labor-intensive stuff being done in China or Mexico, but the final product is being assembled in a U.S. plant, uh, how much of that is counted as, how much of that is counting as manufactured output for the U.S. as opposed to another country? Yeah, and it may be that we really don't have a good way of making those distinctions. So let's keep uh, tracking the the discourse. Lawrence Katz is a Harvard economist who he published a New York Times article called The uh, Long-Term Jobs Killer is Not China, It's Automation in 2016. And according to Katz, the economic consensus was something like this. Um, overall, the long, in the long haul, clearly automation has been much more important than offshoring. It's not even close, he said. And presidential candidate Andrew Yang maintains a version of this narrative. It's really the crux of his campaign. And slowly but surely, it seems to be resonating with many voters, uh, including myself. And about a month ago, competitor Elizabeth Warren, who I used to work for, actually, she started to notice Andrew Yang. So she circulated this article by economist Susan Hausman, discrediting the narrative that automation is the cause of mass unemployment. So let's talk about what Hausman's argument is, and the argument is that automation is not the cause. <clears throat> so uh, on the uh, aforementioned EconTalk podcast, host and economist uh, Russ Roberts summarizes the mainstream story about what happened to the manufacturing sector. Um, it's something like this, that uh, manufacturing as a proportion of total uh, employment has been falling since World War II. The absolute number of manufacturing jobs fell by over 5 million during this period. Uh, at the same time, manufacturing output has grown steadily. Um, so as a source of employment, manufacturing isn't growing, but as a source of GDP, manufacturing is growing. And the cause of increased output is technology. So uh, again, this is just the mainstream uh, understanding of what's happening. I'm not making that argument. Mm -hmm. So of course, Hausman says this is wrong, completely wrong. Um, she argues that the aggregate numbers are unrepresentative of the trends in most industries. You know, if automation were the primary driver of, of manufacturing job displacement, then you would, you'd expect to see large increases in real manufacturing output. And, you know, we do see this in the Bureau of Labor Statistics aggregate trends, both in American manufacturing sector and in the private sector as a whole, which includes manufacturers. You know, according to the BLS, between 2006 and 2013, real manufacturing output in the U.S. grew by 17.6%. Now, but Hausman says there's a problem here. She argues that the preponderance of real output growth within the manufacturing sector can be attributed to a single subsector, and that's computer manufacturing. Uh, she finds when you disaggregate computer manufacturing from overall manufacturing output growth, 
productivity in 2011 was actually lower than in 2000, approximately 12% of private industry, as compared to 63% without omitting computers. So this really isn't the outcome that you would expect, given an increasingly automated manufacturing sector. You know, overall, you'd expect more output, not less. So Hausman goes on to argue that even productivity increases in the computer manufacturing subsector are probably not due to automation. Instead, output growth statistics are massively inflated due to misleading statistical quality adjustments. And let's try to break this down. Uh, I'm neither a statistician nor an economist, so bear with me. Um, when statisticians count manufacturing output, they may count the quantity of screws, steel bars, engines, or Ford Fusions, or whatever. Uh, but these products are not equivalent in value. So how to adjust for this? Uh, first, economists select the value of the final product at the end of the supply chain. Not the screws, not the steel bars, not the engines, but the Ford Fusions. Another term for this calculation is value added, or GDP. Uh, it refers to capital produced, less purchased inputs. So if you buy steel and aluminum to produce a Ford Fusion, then your value added is the value of your Ford Fusion, which is determined by the markets, less the input costs of steel and aluminum. So when the BLS surveys companies, it asks for the value of their shipments and purchase inputs, and then subtracts the two measures to calculate the value added. Second point, um, you know, additionally, economists want to adjust for year-to-year -year price changes, but this can be very complicated. So, for example, assume that the Ford Fusion value added grew by 5% over the last year. Uh, this could mean many things, that the price of a Ford Fusion increased by 5%, the quantity of Ford Fusions produced increased by 5%, or some combination of the two scenarios. So let's return to the computer manufacturing subsector. Electronics are improving in design and density every year. Thus, generally speaking, the value that consumers impose on electronic goods is increasing, Yet the prices of electronic goods are basically stagnant, even falling in some instances. For example, assume that uh, you value your new HP desktop 10% more than your previous HP desktop, yet you bought it for the same price. So in some sense, the price of the improved HP desktop actually fell by 10%. These are the kinds of adjustments economists try to make, but the, the process is time-consuming, expensive, and imperfect. And ultimately, it's hard to judge whether quality price adjustments are hyperinflating the, the uh, appearance of output growth. And Benevov, in his article, cites Hausman's research and says that output growth is hyperinflated due to statistical error. And, you know, in my assessment, Hausman is actually less certain than Benevov, but she definitely favors his position. After reading Benevov in full, it's a little bit um, more clear why he takes this uh, harder stance on, on this issue. Right. And he and he cites Hausman to sort of talk about the context of the US discussion. But he when he takes a longer look, he's, he shows that even even um, with this subsector of the economy uh, expanding, that aggregate uh, manufacturing output in the long term, if we look from around the 1960s, 70s on, has been stagnant worldwide across high income countries. Um, again, t stats that I think we need to discuss carefully next episode. Yeah. Last point on this. Um, Hausman adds another layer of complexity to the previous example. So uh, assume that the inputs required to produce an HP laptop domestically cost $20. And suddenly China starts exporting the same inputs at a $15 rate. So HP moves to the Chinese suppliers to cut costs. And meanwhile, the BLS conducts its annual survey but the survey is, is really quite limited. It doesn't capture HP's decision to shift input sourcing to the lower price supplier. So when we look at the BLS data, we see a hike in HP output growth, which is misleading. Uh, the appearance of higher output is caused by trade. And imports are not indicative of output. So according to Hausman, since the 90s, companies have increasingly practiced offshoring to reduce production costs. Uh, so in some sense, we're understating our imports in real inflation adjusted, uh, adjusted terms. We're overstating the value added GDP, and we are overstating productivity growth. That's, um, I'm quoting Susan mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's quickly recap, because that was probably one of the most dense monologues we've had on the podcast so <laughs> far. <laughs> um, according to Hausman, statistical quality price adjustment and trade are probably inflating the appearance of output growth in the computer manufacturing subsector. However, she is open to the possibility that some of this output growth is real, 
she is not, of course, especially open to the possibility that, that automation is the cause of this output growth. And she argues that automation has existed in the computer ma uh, manufacturing subsector for many decades, but has neither massively contributed to unemployment nor productivity. So um, if it's not automation, what would explain possible output gains in computer manufacturing? Uh, for Hausman, the answer is product and process improvements from research and development. You know, there are probably some researchers who would look at that and be like, well, that includes automation. But I think Hausman has a, a kind of narrower definition of what an automation is. Hmm. So, and so does Benavov, by the way. So, so from Hausman's perspective, manufacturing employment isn't great, but not as bad as we might think it is. So uh, overall, manufacturing output is massively down, particularly when you control for computers. And meanwhile, data from the International Robotics Administration shows U.S. firms have been relatively slow to adopt automating technology. An IRA report claims that there simply aren't that many robots in U.S. factories compared with other advanced economies. So take all of this into consideration. Offshoring seems to be the primary cause of waning manufacturing output and perhaps other challenges affecting the manufacturing workforce, like job displacement and wage suppression. So that's really Hausman's argument. Juan, you have any um, reactions? Yeah, I think... Uh there's there's a lot to discuss there but you know it's if we look at the at the global picture i think a lot of these things start to make sense the question of of um of how us companies have been forced to offshore to compete as companies that are trying to make money that's what companies do so when you are apple and you're you know, a lot of the basic components of your iPhone are being put together in a Foxconn factory in China with using very, very low wage labor at, in, at the very in labor intensive part of the production process. Uh, if, if uh, I'd be interested to see how those components, at what, at what point those components are counted as manufacturing GDP for China. And if, if that gets, added into what's counting as many as manufacturing GDP for the U S for instance. Uh, but the truth of the, the truth of the matter is that element of the production is not automated. It's very, very much uh, still based on, on things like, you know, sitting someone down for 12 hours and doing a repetitive motion over and over and again. And hand dexterity is something that's very crucial when you're dealing with small parts or putting together something like a cell phone, uh, uh, micro processing, whatever, right? So, I think there's a lot to think about there. But I really think we the long distance is what allows us to see a sort of picture of how automation and offshoring sort of work hand in hand. Because as you brought up, and as Houseman brings up, and as you brought up, r robots in factories haven't necessarily been job killers. For instance, in the context in the in, in the situations of Japan. And North Korea, uh, they have actually been competitive edges that have allowed manufacturing se sectors to be healthy and to maintain jobs. Um, yeah, something yeah. to to keep thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. automation is not always you know a, a total replacement of human human uh, involvement in the production process. Absolutely, and, you know the the global economy has become so highly integrated that it's got to be hard for these statisticians to really isolate whether the cause of some new development is local or global right so another reason yeah. why i don't wouldn't you know don't envy the job they had before them yeah yeah let's talk about some possible limitations to the offshoring discourse um you know it's framed by the uh opponents of the Warren Houseman criticism. So um, really, you know, Andrew Yang offered the following counterpoints, and uh, they may or may not be very compelling to you. But the first one, that anecdotally, he spent a great deal of time speaking with the victims of manufacturing automations in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and so on, whose manufacturing sectors once thrived. And, you know, th that may be an important data point. It's certainly the perception of many people that their jobs disappeared due to robots. The second thing he observes is that um, reduced output growth may be the result of workers being displaced into low productivity job roles and sectors as a means of survival. So if I understand the second argument, 
Uh, it implies an, an assumption that as workforces shrink due to automation, workers receive less compensation due to conducting less work. But, you know, as we were just saying, the opposite could also be true. As workforces shrink due to automation, wages could go up for a smaller number of employees who get upskilled into more intellectually com complex roles. So it's not clear to me which one of these assumptions is most accurate. I'm sure, you know, depending on the situation, both can play out in different ways. Lastly, Yang cites a 2017 Ball State University paper which finds that trade accounted for 13% of manufacturing job losses between 2000 and 2010, while productivity gains accounted for nearly 88% of job losses. And you know, th this, this paper came out before Susan Hausman's criticism. This is actually one of the papers that Hausman is, is gunning for in her um, new research. So, but, but the Ball State paper offers a completely divergent illustration of U.S. manufacturing output. And of course, Hausman thinks it is completely wrong. But for authors Michael Hicks and Srikant Devaraj, I think I said that correctly, so manufacturing <laughs> across most subsectors is strong. Uh, here's what they say. Uh, growth manufacturing remains positive, and the sector as a whole has appeared strong and resilient over the past several decades. Hausman reports that much of the recent growth concentrated in computers and electronics might be overstated by failure to appropriately measure productivity growth in these sectors. Still, the strong recovery in more traditional sectors suggests a broader recovery than might have been expected. We believe a contribution to the myth of manufacturing decline is the state of labor usage in manufacturing. It is to that issue we now turn our attention. And of course, they're talking about automation. One of the authors, Michael Hicks, agrees with Hausman that some of the data on manufacturing output may be inflated. But automation includes a wide range of technologies, and Hausman's categorization of automation is too limited. Neglecting technologies like software bots that can save millions in labor hours by eliminating tedious, repetitive digital tasks, you know, like transferring data, checking for errors, confirming information on the web, and so on. And these are the kinds of automations that I'm most viscerally uh, familiar with. You know, mm. You know, take, for example, if you have a workforce of four data people and you implement a software automation that eliminates one fourth of the data management work stream, then suddenly you have the option to eliminate one employee. It's relatively easy and low cost to build these software bots. You know, I'm in the process of learning the skill myself and I'm not, you know, a data person. So, you know, maybe I can make one to do our podcast research, Juan. <laughs> and you could, and then you can do the podcast by yourself, right? You can replace you can replace one podcaster. That'd be that quite way. quite long though. That'd be sad. Or well, it could make us more productive, right? And a better podcast. If we had a machine learning bot, I think that would make us more productive because then it <laughs> it just augment our ability to process information and present it in a compelling way. Maybe, or it would give us too much information to process. Yeah, well, maybe uh, Elon Musk can can finally uh, build that um, AI human brain interface so we can merge and be able to process all that information in a in a constructive way mm, not holding my breath but we'll see <laughs> all right well in a 2017 national bureau of economic research article economists um uh, darren a smoglu of mit and pascal restrepo of boston university observed that when you broaden your definition of automation to include software bots uh, the impact to U.S. jobs dramatically increases. Uh, they find that depending on the study, robots or machines really displaced roughly 750,000 jobs between 1993 and 2007, or 1.1 million jobs between 1999 and 2018. Um, the impact of Chinese imports is about two and a half times as large. However, robots or machines are just one type of automation. So when you consider other types of automations, the impact to U.S. employment is comparable to that of Chinese imports. So trade with China is the most important factor, but not the predominant factor. And another counterpoint is that automation and trade can propel each other. And according to economist Mark Miro at Brookings, the Internet, big data and analytic software are functionally automations, especially in the factory uh, setting and other settings. Um, so, but they, they enable globalization. So the introduction of such technologies into the firm results in further offshoring. Uh, moreover, uh, remember that other countries like China and India are massively investing in automation. So this makes them hyper price competitive by suppressing wages and eliminating workers, 
culminating in further offshoring. So there's really a complementary uh, uh, dynamic here. And last point on this, uh, the Washington Post conducted its own fact check of the arguments surrounding automation and trade. So take this with a grain of salt. But the article concludes here, uh, so I'm quoting this, the available research suggests Elizabeth Warren speaks with too much certainty. Even researchers who do not accept the Ball State findings are not willing to go as far as Warren, in part because more research needs to be done in entangling the interplay between trade and automation. And that, that's uh, by Kessler, the author of this 2019 article. So <clears throat> even if automation is not the primary driver of the manufacturing decline right now, Juan, um, I think it's likely to pose challenges in the future. And this is kind of what we talked about in episode three with Bernard Stiegler. Mm -hmm. And you know, consider that manufacturing is not the only target of automation. Um, automation will increasingly impact most, if not every sector across the global economy, unless governments intervene. So even Susan Hausman's research shows that while the real output of U.S. manufacturing is falling, the real output of private industry remains strong, including when you control for computers. So my intuition here, rightly or wrongly, is that technology investment is likely the cause of strong private industry output growth. Um, of course, Benavab will tell us that globally there is no such output growth. Well, there's a very slack output growth. According to Benavov, I think we we should look at the numbers, but he he yeah, cites yeah. across the high income world the sort of very sluggish general uh, output growth. Yeah. In the long term, right? In the long term, since if we look at these since the seventies, since the seventies, yeah. Well, so according to a recent KPMG report, forty five percent of tasks in the average workplace can be automated. And all you need to do is understand the process. If the process is well understood, then often you can train a bot to accurately perform the process. Oh, and additionally, uh, according to a recent Oxford economics report, 8.5% of global manufacturing jobs could be automated by 2030. And this doesn't account for other vulnerable sectors such as trucking, retail, contract writing, even certain types of journalism. Um, there are 3.5 million truckers in the US Conservatively, we're just decades away from seeing the first self-driving trucks on the road, although Tesla says it's just a matter of years. Um, they said something similar about Mars, though, so that's... Still not like, holding my breath. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> be great to see it, though. But now, lastly, we, we, we mentioned that U.S. companies have been slow to adopt automations, and this is because some of the more advanced tech is very expensive and risky. So companies really want to see demonstrated cost savings before investing large sums of capital in advanced tech. But I think we're approaching the end of this early adopter period. If the U.S. intends to remain competitive against foreign investors, then it has to start investing soon. And the bot, uh, the bot builders are prepared and patiently standing by to automate as many processes as possible, making billions along the way. So um, those are some considerations for the future. And I'll give you my parting words, and then I'll leave the rest to you, Juan. So here's where I'm at. Um, Houseman has presented a very compelling argument. She may not have the broadest definition of automation. She understates the challenges associated with automation, in my opinion. But there really hasn't been any serious attempt to rebut Houseman's argument that output growth is inflated due to statistical error. And of course, this research is relatively new, so give it a year, and maybe someone will pre try to present some conflicting evidence. In my view, um, Andrew Yang is completely right to worry about automation and basing his campaign on the narrative that we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in rural America may be a smart political move. Um, you know, it's a compelling narrative, even if it's a flawed one. You know, you, you had all of these um, states that saw their jobs go away and Trump said it was uh, immigration and trade that was the result of your jobs going away. So Andrew Yang is stepping in, doing something you know strategically interesting. He's saying that, well, that's not actually what it was. It's automation and technology. So he's creating a new villain for people to unite around. So in that sense, maybe it was a, a smart political move to base his campaign on this idea. Regardless of the causes of job displacement in the U.S., I, I think Yang's policy proposals are still interesting and worth exploring. So like universal basic income, uh, changing our economic measurements to focus on human well-being like we talked about gdp today um, but that doesn't tell us about you know like freedom from substance abuse health and well-being um, education uh, 
environmental stewardship. These aren't things that we're measuring. Right. So, and, uh, you know, another policy he has democracy dollars to get corporate money out of politics. Also re-internalizing negative externalities to try to get the markets to work better for us. These are all really good ideas in my view. Uh, but Benavov, uh, has a, a different perspective on this. Uh, I don't know if he'd go so far to say they're not good ideas, but there, there's more to consider here. So um, yeah. maybe we're completely missing the point here, Juan. So um, I guess that's what we need to talk about next. Yeah, I think we, you know, I think there's a, there are a couple of questions to be asked about automation, right? One of the questions is, what is the motivation? What is the driving force for automation when firms are trying to automate Right. Uh, obviously, there's always a drive uh, in capitalism for firms to find to be more productive. Right. There's always an attempt to get a competitive edge. So automation technologies are clearly going to be something that firms immediately, right, their ears go up and they start listening because they say, oh, here's a way in which you can reduce human costs, labor costs. Right. And therefore make make some more money uh, and have a competitive advantage against uh, other firms across the world and other countries within the same country and the same market, etc. So that's, that's clearly going to always be a drive. But we also have to understand, I think, the motivation of what might be driving an accelerated sense of we need to, mo we need to automate and also the accelerated perspective that there's an automation drive that's going to get rid of jobs. And that's where looking at the long term, I think, understanding Benavav's argument, uh, looking at the systemic dimension is important, right? Because uh, if, and I, I mean, I want to go deeply into his argument in our next episode, but if the argument he makes is correct, which is an argument about uh, uh, stagnation in manufacturing output across the global level um, since the 1970s, because, as he says, we have basically something what he just refers to as system overcapacity. Now, what does he mean by that? He basically is saying um, there right now there is not and there aren't enough consumers, middle class consumers, to consume the things that are being produced, manufactured, manufactured goods. Uh, you know, there's only so many cars, fridges cell phones, televisions that one middle-class family can buy. The middle-class, again, being understood as sort of your mass base of consumers, right? Um, and so I think it's important to grapple with that in order to understand the specific moment of automation and how it relates to things like offshoring and job losses and the drive to automate, too, that companies are seeing themselves uh, faced with as they, as they try to look for any competitive advantage for an for a market, if Benavav is right, that is not growing, right? So you so if you have a bunch of people fighting for the same pie, that year after year is just growing minutely, um, you are going to have to find, you're going to have to do something. Uh, well, I, I want to get into the nitty gritty of what that looks like geographically, who the big players are, and to understand that. But uh, I think you're right. I think automation, nonetheless, has to be thought of as a major. Uh, I guess taking a step back for an instant and trying to get away from all the stats, right? Whether the long term, the short term, the U.S., whether we're measuring things correctly, I think you're. I don't think uh, you know. I think you're right to say that automation is something we have to grapple with, and how is it going to change work? How is it going to change capitalism? How is it going to way? You know, if you automate all the jobs away. Who is going to be your mass consumer base that stabilizes capitalism? Who is going to buy all the things made by by capitalists when they're looking for a profit, right? Are you going to and then and so something like UBI is an attempt, I think, to start thinking about how we have to do transfers of capital that are not based on work, that are based on hey, we're going to give you money because we need somebody to buy something from us. But then that brings up a bigger question, right? I think philosophical uh, question which is when you automate all the way, way all the jobs and people don't no, no longer have to work, then what happens to the profit model that drives capitalism? Um, I think those, that's a big question that we might want to keep in the back of our minds, but one that is important to sort of 
try to grapple with because my my skepticism regarding someone like yang is technocratic solutions that don't take these larger systemic dimensions into account um you really i think have to, we really have to start grappling with the systemic dimension of capitalism as a system as a globalized system with a specific logic and if we don't we're bound to sort of offer uh piecemeal uh solutions that don't ever solve the problem um and i think maybe we'll get into that next next uh next time we next episode but if even if you even if you come across with something like uh even if you're able to implement something like ubi in the united states at a local level how, how does that solve the larger systemic problem of of let's say stagnant output let's say uh, you might be able to create a new mass of consumers at the u.s level which might be great for manufacturing actually uh worldwide but but would it be would it be the solution systemic solution that we need um, i'm not really sure that it would be and i want to discuss at length next episode why i think that's the case and why i agree with a lot of benavov's argument about what the what the state of manufacturing is and how it relates to the question of automation uh, and maybe you know jason it might be worth for us then to go after that episode and try to think through automation as it relates to to capitalism at a systemic level right uh, just in the abstract in terms of looking at our horizon and what's coming up in the future yeah i think uh we'll definitely have an additional episode to uh, work through Benavov's argument Some more in, in detail. And, you know, this this may, be, this may turn out to be more than a two-parter series. So I think we're yeah. going to have to see where, where the conversation goes. For and, sure. you know, like we mentioned in the beginning, this is going to be an ongoing conversation as one of the core themes of the Panoptic podcast. Yeah. Now, the, the one yeah. thing, listening to you speak, um, Benavov's argument really flies in the face of classical economics. So we should probably talk about the difference between kind of the the supply side view that mathematically things balance out, you know, su supply meets demand, and yeah. because that is not a a uh, a model that Benavov is granting credence credence to in his argument here. Yeah, well, I'd go farther than that. I'd say history doesn't grant doesn't grant uh, a very positive light on this argument that sort of markets are magically stabilizing uh, i think history shows us starting with you know the late 19th century early 20th century and the the rise of things like the administrative state that uh, that uh, capitalism for all its dynam dynamism uh its capacity to produce wealth uh is not by any means a stable uh a stable sort of setup um and and I think that's something to grapple with as we understand things like, uh, you know, economists as far back as 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 uh, Keynes, right? Who who is under trying to understand how it is that uh, at specific crisis moments in capitalism that are caused by um, by certain uh, inertias, by imbalances, by the incapacity of industry to to take its physical infrastructure and readjust it once it's the product that it's, you know, the specific market of products that it's making is oversaturated and there's no longer any, any, anybody to, to buy its goods in a specific geographical area. Uh, how the necessity of the, of the state to do act outside of the frameworks of the, of, of the market and to re sort of move capital around and reframe the economy is something that I think that we, that history has shown a long time ago that, uh, that uh, that markets aren't somewhat stabilizing and that mathematical equations on paper are really great and fantastic and can help us to do a lot of things but they but there's it's really hard to go to to sort of use mathematical equations to describe material things you know real people real real uh consumption uh patterns and real consumption also rates and 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 uh, and material things, right? So, I I want to dive into that really deeply, but uh, I think the, the there are certain historical moments that we need to think about. One of them being the post World War II moment 
and the things like the Marshall Plan and what that meant for global capitalism, uh, where the U.S. basically gives away for free, right, tons of capital and tons of technology to Japan and Germany. It's former, you know, to the death enemies in, in the war they just finished fighting to draw them into the into the into their into the world economic sphere and to create uh, a mass consumer base for the U.S.'s goods, uh, uh, the U.S. and an economy that had come out of World War II with a capacity to produce, you know, an immense amount of, of manufactured products, but needing a base of consumers. Um, so, so here you see it, uh, something that the market would never have chosen to do, which is sort of give things away, technology and, and money to to people and to create a, another consumer base for its for its goods. So I think that's that's a key moment to start thinking. That helps us think about uh, the some of the limits of classical classical economics, some of the difficulties of thinking about uh, economics in a geographical, global, material sense, and then some of the limits also that we face going forward in terms of well, what happens when you automate everything else? I mean, sure, automation sounds great in the abstract for companies, but when you automate all the jobs, that means that nobody has an income. Um, which means you have nobody to buy your goods and services, yeah. Uh, except the people who own capital, who are not the mass of consumers, right? So, some interesting questions to to, to consider. The the one thing I'll, I'll quickly mention is that even in Keynes, you know, he is talking about the sh the short run economic model, and you know, the these um, you know crisis periods really have to do with sticky wages something he comes up with that explained these like excesses that even for him in the long run revert back to a su supply side economic model at least as i understand it so i'm curious to see well it might be how, worth going back and read those texts yeah, those texts yeah, yeah. together but you also have to keep into consideration that Keynes understood that uh that uh in the you know as he said in the long run we're all dead and even if markets could somehow adjust over the long term, the destruction, the massive human loss and destruction that's caused along the way is something that can be mitigated through careful industrial policy, care careful monetary policy, right? So markets are, you know, markets have a specific intelligence that I would call a very limited intelligence, right? Money as a, as a signal, money as a media through which to... Uh, to which to exchange goods and services, right? Is has uh, it's very powerful, but it's not by any means some sort of complex rationality that can uh, account for things like. Well, maybe we need to leave in, in brackets what it can account for and what it can't, uh, uh, and go back to these classic debates that are from the mid twentieth century between, let's say, people like Schumpeter, you know, who is really advocating for a certain for a kind of uh, free market uh, ideal. Yeah, well, well, that's, maybe that's unfair. But he is someone who is very interested in sort of a liberalization of markets. And his opposition, you know, sort of the the famous, uh, it's called the, the famous socialist calculation debate, which is about the problems of centralized planning versus what the market can do in a sort of decentralized fashion. Um, but that th those are, there's a lot to learn from those from those debates about uh, about what you know what role does the state play in uh, in capitalist development excellent let's talk more about it uh, next time and yeah uh, i am got lots to, to talk about prepare to uh, socratically cross-examine these arguments and uh, hopefully we'll all come away with uh, really interesting uh, new perspectives on the mainstream political discourses that are happening now be interesting to see if these discourses evolve if we start getting more globalized perspectives or long-term uh, perspectives on um, why automation and offshoring uh, are happening in the developed world to, to such a great extent. So more to come yep. on that. Okay. Sounds good, and, Jason. And uh, to our listeners, uh, you're going to get our um, standard uh, Juan Pablo uh, message about uh, liking and subscribing, but I'll just uh, echo that, that, um, we're steadily growing and we appreciate the lis listenership. So um, please, especially over the holidays, you're going to be with your family and friends. Um, take a second to uh, pitch the podcast and uh, get people to 
check us out so we can start uh, growing more and getting more uh, feedback and, and uh, bring more people into the conversation. Much yep. appreciated. I second that, all of that, Jason. You suck at it? I, sec- I second it. I, oh, you second <laughs> But I, I suck at other things, but not at that. I, I second <laughs> that to what Jason just said. Ruin your holidays by starting, by making people listen to this political, some of our more charged stuff. But in the long run, uh, it's going to be great for you and your family and your and for when you vote in a year it's gonna be great it's gonna be tremendous it's gonna be really really great happy holidays juan do you enjoy what you're hearing on panoptic pod is the application of philosophy media theory and communications theory to everyday practical contexts something that you find interesting or useful if so please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com slash panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website, panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment. Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.